I just want to ask you guys to close your eyes for a moment and just imagine. (laughs) Maybe you've felt it before, the push and the pull. It comes from any number of directions, pressing in and down and upon you under the weight of incalculable pressure, countless pounds per square inch on every inch of you. It's just water, but is it? It feels like some elephant standing upon your chest, like some weightlifter's weights stacked to the ceiling on top of you. Then the water pours into your lungs and you're trying to breathe. It's your sole focus, your only desire, your greatest goal and aspiration. But all you can breathe in is another breath of water. H2O. Two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. If only you could rid yourself of the hydrogen and breathe in the pure, plain old, all by itself oxygen. But you can't. You haven't got the power to do so. And the harder you kick and fight to breathe, the weaker you become in the perpetual, unrelenting onslaught. Now that's power. That's power. You can open your eyes. That's power, and it comes in all different forms and shapes and sizes. It's not limited to the realm of physics, but it's all over the map in our social or emotional, psychological and spiritual experiences. Power is dangerous, and it's awesome. And it can produce unspeakable damage or uncontainable joy. I want to open up with a table talk tonight. Discuss this around you, with the people around you at your table. How is power used or abused in our world today? Now, I want to be sensitive to the various cultures and political backgrounds and ideas and people that we are, our beliefs. How is power used or abused in our world today? But then, how do you use or abuse power in your own life? Ready, go. Tonight, as we continue with the passion narrative in the Gospel of John, power is on display. And I think it should be a reminder to us about who actually holds true power in our lives. Our passage tonight begins with Jesus on trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate the governor of Judea. A word about Pontius Pilate, you can follow along also on the screen. As governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate possessed what was called imperium, or this supreme commanding power to maintain law and order in the region. It's kind of like what a big brother possesses when mom's not at home. You know, mom's out running errands at the grocery store or something, so big brother's in charge of all his younger siblings. 
But Big Brother should know that at some point, even though he's got all of this power because mom's gone, he should know that mom's going to return at some point. Or mom's just going to check in on the nanny cam and see how things are going. While Pilate holds immense power, he's pressured to maintain that power by an even greater power. That is Emperor Tiberius Caesar of the Roman Empire. And if he can't, if he can't maintain that power and his responsibility, well, let's just find someone else who can. So Pilate's doing his part to maintain law and order in the region after this powerfully chaotic crowd just dropped some peasant, some so-called criminal named Jesus on his doorstep. And here is where we pick it up. Pilate's just begun his questioning of Jesus. He's freed a criminal named Barabbas to the crowd. And here we are in John 19. If you are able to stand, I want to invite you to stand as we read John 19, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Jesus, as we recount your passion, would we be touched? Would we see it in a new light? tonight and remind us about power in our lives about who holds true power and how we can honor you with the power that we have in Jesus name we pray amen you may be seated And go ahead and follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen as we begin. Verse 1 says, Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Pilate apparently believes here that if he has Jesus flogged, then the powerfully chaotic crowd will be satisfied, that they will be appeased and go away. So Pilate has Jesus flogged. But in which way? What? <laughs> Romans were really good at torturing people. The Romans were really good at torturing people. They actually had three different methods, three different forms of corporal punishment that they used. They increased in their degree of severity, beginning with fustigatio, which is just a, a regular beating, Flagellation, which is flogging, or verberatio, which is a severe flogging. And the most severe, verberatio, is what's going on here in John 19, verse 1. It's indicated by the Greek verb mastigao, which means to flog severely with the victim strapped to a pole or some sort of frame. So Pilate has Jesus flogged in the most inhumane, incredibly powerful way you can imagine. Traditionally, 39 lashes. Traditionally, with the cat and nine tails. We'll explore both of those. First up, 39 lashes. 
It's commonly assumed that Jesus received 39 lashes from the Romans before his crucifixion, but the Bible, it doesn't say explicitly how many lashes he actually received. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3, part of the law, part of the Old Testament, says that a criminal should not receive more than 40 lashes. But since Jesus is being flogged by the Romans and not by the Jewish authorities, it's debatable if the Romans would actually follow this Jewish tradition of 39 lashes. Oftentimes, the number of lashes would be much more than 39, depending on the mood of the soldier delivering the blows. The cat and nine tails, regardless of how many lashes, the soldiers may have used a whip made of braided leather thongs. And woven into these leather thongs were metal balls that would cause deep bruises and contusions that would break open with the further blows. Along with these woven metal balls were sharp pieces of bone or glass. It would completely shred the skin. It would go from his shoulders to his back, his lower back, his buttocks, to the back of his legs. One physician who studied these Roman beatings said, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius described a Roman flogging by saying the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Now, obviously, when you hear about this, common sense would tell you that many people would die from this ruthless display of power, this powerful beating, even before they could be crucified. At the very least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into what's called hypovolemic shock. Hypo meaning low or under, vol referring to volume, and emic comes from the Greek hyma meaning blood. It's basically what happens to your body when you lose a significant amount of blood. Hypovolemic shock does four things to the body. The heart races to pump blood that just isn't there. The blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapsing. The kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume's left. And the person becomes very thirsty. This medical condition is quite clearly displayed in each of the Gospels' presentation of the Passion narrative. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Pilate had Jesus flogged, with a lead-tipped whip. Then the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. The crown of thorns that the Roman soldiers wove together and placed on Jesus' head, it probably came from a local date palm tree. I don't know if you've ever done any landscaping with palm trees before, but it's nasty, nasty business. My father-in-law has some big palm trees in the, in the front yard, and I remember seeing his hand just swell up like crazy. I'm like, what's going on with your hand, Joe? And it turns out he got stuck with one of these, you know, needle-sharp uh, 
palm fronds, and I guess he was allergic to it or something. His hand was all swollen and everything. Extremely sharp, extremely painful to get pricked by one of these. But I want you to picture a Roman coin. I think we have a couple of images of it where the emperor wears a crown of palm fronds. Often you may see like ivy leaves or something, but sometimes you see the, the, the emperors with palm fronds, kind of like the Statue of Liberty, right? And it appears to radiate this glory from their head, rays of light shooting out, reflecting off needle-sharp spikes. But now picture those palm fronds facing inward instead of outward. Ouch. The crown of thorns, though, as painful as it must have been, is a mockery of Jesus' kingship. And so, too, is the purple robe. The purple color of the robe shows a royal status, a sign of kingship and honor, but This is clearly no way to recognize the power and kingship and honor of the king. Verse 3 says, Hail, king of the Jews! They mocked as they slapped him across the face. The crown of thorns is a mockery of Jesus' kingship. So too is the purple robe. So too is this phrase, Hail, king of the Jews! The soldiers, they mock, hail, king of the Jews. It's a phrase that actually reflects a customary praise that the people would give to the Roman emperor, Ave Caesar, which means hail Caesar. So this is clearly no way to recognize the power and kingship and honor of the king Jesus. The soldiers mock him as king with a a crown of thorns with a purple robe, crying out in mock praise, Hail, King of the Jews. But it's strange, and it's also ironic, because as they're mocking him in this way, we readers realize that, well, it's, it's true. It is true. He is king. But this is clearly no way to recognize his power and his kingship and and honor to the king. I want to do another table talk question tonight. How, How do you recognize the power and kingship and honor of the king? In other words, how do you honor Jesus with your life? Ready, go. All right, let's wrap it up and we'll bring it back together here. Yeah, I think there might be a lot of uh, answers to the question if someone were to ask you, why, why do you go to church? Like, what, why are you going on a Wednesday night to church? There's so many different things you could be doing. You could be watching, you know, different shows. You could be, you know, at home hanging out, recovering, getting ready for the next day or the, you know, the week ahead, whatever it is, or even Sunday. You know, why, why do you go to church? Maybe it's to see your friends. Maybe it's to do this. Maybe it's to do that. Um, but I think if we were really honest, like, the most important thing is first to honor God. And we do that. And, but do I always do that? 
I don't know. Probably not. It's, it's on the list. Yeah, I'm going to honor God. But like mentally, do I come into church every Sunday or every Wednesday or, or just every day of the week thinking like, you know what? I'm going to worship God. I'm going to, I'm going to honor God. Uh, that's my goal. That's my purpose. And I do that by loving people. But first, by loving God, right? And so I, I don't know. I wonder what it would look like if we all in one accord... Not the car, but, you know, together, if we all together came with this sole purpose and sole idea of like, hey, like today we're going to worship God. We're going to honor God. And I don't just mean on Sunday or Wednesday, but every day. And I think that's what we're doing. I think that's what we're trying to cultivate here. But we get distracted, right? You know, at least I do. Honor is, is an interesting concept. And when we consider the passion narrative... And the, the steps or the stations of the cross that Jesus experiences, I think that we often focus on the Hollywood version, at least. The images of brutality and gore, kind of like just what I, I read about before and, and what I spoke about, going into all those different details. Before we focus on the images of brutality and gore, and we think, wow, that's, that's a lot of blood. And geez, that, that must have really been a terrible, painful experience. It, it must have been, but how much deeper are the unseen wounds that Jesus experienced. How much deeper? Because I can tell you, you know, I don't know if you've been flogged before. I have not been flogged before. Uh, I've been spanked, but not flogged or anything. But I've carried some deep wounds too. And sometimes those can be lifelong. Even though they might not be scars on my body. They might be lifelong scars inside that I carry with me. But how much deeper are the unseen wounds of Jesus, of dishonor or shame or betrayal, rejection, denial? Perhaps it's more of a Western idea of things. And our cultural differences, you know, they have us viewing life in terms of guilt and pain instead of maybe an Eastern way of understanding of honor and shame. But when we read the passion narrative, the story of Jesus, there's a lot to understand in a sobering way. There's a lot to understand and cringe at, actually, when we read it through the lens of honor and shame. The deep and unseen wounds inflicted by dishonor and shame must have been torturous for Jesus. Sure, he was beaten and flogged and crucified, but he was also ripped open by being betrayed, rejected, spit on, cursed at, mocked, denied, abandoned, and more. The list goes on. Verses 4 through 6a, Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I am going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Just stop and think about that. Just stop and think about that. Wishing death upon someone. Not just any death. But the cruelest form of punishment practiced by the Romans. 
a punishment so cruel that Roman citizens couldn't normally undergo it, a punishment so cruel it was reserved for the worst of crimes. The Roman statesman named Cicero, maybe you've heard of him before, called it a cruel and disgusting penalty. Josephus, the ancient historian, called it the worst of deaths. And it's this type of cruel and disgusting penalty, the worst of deaths, that the leading priests and temple guards cry out for Jesus to suffer. Verse 6b says, take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. Now, the Jewish authorities didn't have any authority or power to carry out the death penalty. So this statement comes out of Pilate, maybe in terms of frustration, or maybe this is just sarcasm on his part. But he continues, I find him not guilty. It's the second time Pilate said that. Kind of sounds like he's trying to like clear his name or something. But does this really matter to Pilate? We read it and we think, well, Jesus, yeah, that's, that's you know, the protagonist of the story. That's, that's my king. That's my savior. So this is a really big deal. But to Pilate, does this even matter? I mean, what was this peasant to Pilate? You may say, well, in the other Gospels, you know, there's a, you know, Pilate's wife, you know, plays a big part and swaying. Well, that's not in the Gospel of John. Let's read the Gospel of John in its own right. And we see what is this Pilate, what is this peasant to Pilate? Just another criminal to be crucified. It's just another criminal. Another day we're going to crucify more criminals because that's what we do in the Roman Empire. Well, there's actually more going on here to explain why Pilate's Kind of wishy-washy with everything. And we'll get to that. Verse 7 says, The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God, John chapter 10, which means blasphemy under normal circumstances. That is, if it wasn't true. But under the Mosaic law, the penalty for blasphemy, which is like speech or action that reviles, curses, slanders, reproaches, or despises God, was death, according to Leviticus 24, 16. This is what it says. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be stoned to death by the whole community of Israel. Wait a second. Not crucified by your Gentile overlords? Now, stoned to death by the whole community of Israel. Well, apparently they forgot the oversight there. Any native-born Israelite or foreigner among you who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. But what if it's not blasphemy? And what if it's true? What if Jesus actually is the Son of God who will sit at the right hand of the throne of God, exercising power and judgment and authority? Well, it appears that they have their minds made up. They've made a conscious decision, these leaders, that Jesus is not the Son of God. This is clearly no way to recognize the power and kingship and honor of the king. Verses 8 through 10, when Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? 
But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Pilate assumes that he holds the power of life and death in his hands. But how strange it is. This one before Pilate not only has the power of life and death in his hands, but the power to create the very ground that Pilate stands upon with finely tuned electromagnetic and gravitational forces to enable him to stand. This one before Pilate not only has the power of life and death in his hands, but the power to create the very rays of light that reflect off the image of this beaten and bruised peasant before him and enters into his corneas and produces sight. This one before Pilate not only has the power of life and death in his hands, but the power to create the very ability for Pilate to formulate thoughts and thoughts into words and words into sound and sound waves into speech. Come on, Pilate. (laughs) What power do you really have over me? That could have been what uh, my wife Tara told me when she was gone this past weekend in Phoenix. She was on a a trip with uh, the Fab Five, five girls that they've been friends forever, and it was a bachelorette party they were going on, and uh, she could have told me, what power do you really have over me if I were overlording, calling, texting, trying to find out where she was and what she was doing every five minutes or four minutes or three minutes, you know, but as her husband... uh, You know, that's my right, right? I have the ability and the authority to exert my power over her. But bigger things were at play. I didn't want to do that. Like, who does that? I got to give her her space, her time. It wasn't the right time to do something like that. And I think about that with Jesus. Here you have all this power And yet you stand beaten and bruised and bloodied, paraded before all the people on display, mocked as a king with a crown of thorns, a purple robe. And yet you don't exert your power. Well, because bigger things are at play. Verse 11, then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. When I read that at first, I was like, oh yeah, like Judas, right? Judas has the greater sin because he betrayed you and handed you over, but it's wrong. It wasn't Judas. Judas handed Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. And the Jewish authorities handed him over to Pilate. That Jewish authority was named Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus here might be calling out Caiaphas, the high priest, for doing what he did, handing him over to Pilate. Or he might be calling out Caiaphas, the high priest, and all that he stands for, how he represents all the Jewish authorities. 
Well, in either case here, whether he's calling out Caiaphas or calling out Caiaphas and, and the Jewish authorities that they've got greater sin, Pilate's still not off the hook. He's still got his sin. Verse 12 says, Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And just watch how Pilate shifts everything here. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. They get under Pilate's skin. They touch a nerve that they know will cause him to react because it's his duty to use his power to squash rebellions and uprisings or else his job would fall into the hands of someone more capable as a Roman governor. If Pilate now fails to convict Jesus, the Jewish authorities could go and complain to Rome that Pilate is here releasing a traitor. So Pilate's between a rock and a hard place. And to make matters worse, he's also on thin ice. Let's take a look at this. Pilate's record as a governor was not entirely above reproach. That's a nice way of saying Pilate was corrupt. The emperor Tiberius, the emperor of the Roman Empire, he lived away from Rome, kind of as a, a hermit or a recluse on the island of Capri, was known for his suspicious nature, especially toward rivals, for those who posed a political threat, like those maybe who released traitors or those who can't stop uprisings. Worst of all, Pilate's supporter in Rome, that is the guy who gave him the job. The guy who gave him the job as the governor of Judea, Sejanus, had recently come under suspicion of plotting to seize the empire for himself. So Pilate is now in a very delicate situation. In one sense, in his mind, it's probably no good to put an innocent man to death. In another not good to have a riot erupt under your watch. The Jewish authorities may have known this rock and hard place which Pilate is between, and they may have used it as leverage here. And it worked. Because Pilate, watch his next moves, goes directly to the seat of judgment to pronounce his judgment. Verses 13 through 16, then they said this, when they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate spoke to the people, look, here is your king. Away with him. They yelled, away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. And Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. But this is clearly no way to recognize the power and kingship and honor of the king. Power is dangerous and awesome. 
and it can produce unspeakable damage or uncontainable joy. What you and I choose to do with the power that is given to us, what you and I choose to do with the power that is given to us, whether you're a mom or whether you're an employee or a boss or a servant or a volunteer, whether you're a son, whether you're a daughter, whether you have a a responsibility as a friend, what you and I choose to do with the power that is given to us can produce unspeakable damage or uncontainable joy. But if you and I first choose to recognize the power and kingship and honor of the king in our lives, well, I think that's a good start. To realize that we might be in this position where, yeah, maybe we are a boss. Or maybe you have a family, you have a household, and you have this position of power and authority. But I think we should treat every, every instance of power like we are that big brother who's been entrusted to care for our, our family. But we should know that mom's coming back. That mom is returning. And mom's watching every move on that nanny cam. And the power we think we have to use or abuse, let's first honor God with with the power, with the honor, with the glory. And I think everything else will just fall right into place. It's not really rocket science. Sure, maybe we talked about some Latin words, some Greek words tonight some terrible things that happened to Jesus, but it's not rocket science. If you walk away with something tonight, walk away with this. Honor God first. If we can conceptualize that, if if we can think about that first and foremost, I want to honor God. Just honor God with everything. Is this situation honoring God? Is this TV show honoring God? Is this music I'm listening to honor God? Is the way I'm treating my wife honoring God? Is the way I treat the the strangers or volunteers or, or friends I have, is that honoring God? And when we put everything through that, I think life becomes a lot more clear. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we don't want to be people who use and abuse power but we want to use it for your glory and goodness. For you have empowered us, and we carry the Holy Spirit inside of us to do great and wonderful things that we couldn't even imagine. Help us to treat this with utmost privilege, realizing that the opportunities you give us should be treasured that the people in our lives should be honored. Put it on our hearts, Lord, to see our lives and how honoring you, it needs to come first. Rearrange the things. Show us at least and help us to take those steps to change. We thank you for what you went through for us. The mockery, the shame, the pain, the agony. We know you did it because you love us. 
And you've got great plans for us, God. So help us to fulfill them as we live for you each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.